Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. Uh, the app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. I'm going to start today by asking you a couple of questions about doctrine. If I were to ask you to explain to someone the doctrine of salvation, of redemption, would you be able to do it? Maybe you wouldn't do it perfectly, but would you be able to explain the gospel? Uh, how about the doctrine of sin? And do you know what sin is? Uh, could you give personal illustrations? How about the doctrine of the Trinity? Do you know the significance of the doctrine of the Trinity? Now, there are certain things in the Christian faith that we've agreed to disagree on in the church, like the form of baptism we choose or issues about the end times and so on, but not the Trinity. For centuries, the church has said, this is essential information about who God is. Why is that? Why have Christians throughout history drawn a line in the sand on this belief? Well, that's what I wanna talk about today. I wanna to talk about the Trinity and the role of the Holy Spirit within the Trinity. And this has an implication for you and me, for the church, that is so important, I don't think it can be exaggerated. And I hope and pray that God speaks through what is spoken today. And you and I are gripped by what this means for us. So we're gonna to start today in the classroom, just teaching, and I'm gonna ask you to think and study real hard, and then we'll move to real life, and we'll think about what the implications are about the Trinity and the unity of the Spirit for real life. So first, the classroom. I wanna start with Ephesians 4, and I wanna ask you to look for the word that keeps repeating. Uh, this, there's a, a very important word we're gonna come to over and over again today, and I want you to notice in the first six verses of Ephesians 4, this is what Paul writes. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. All right, what's the word? The word is one. It is, I think, God's favorite word. Uh, Paul is struck by the oneness that the Christian faith can bring. Now, why is that such a remarkable word when it applies to God? Well, when it applies to God, it's remarkable because of the doctrine of the Trinity. God is three persons, the Holy Spirit, who has been in our midst since Pentecost, and the Son, Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of all, and the Father. They are three persons and yet one. They exist in perfect unity. Now, I'd like to ask you to think for a moment about what life must be like within the Trinity. Have you ever thought about that before? What must life be like between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? How do they experience each other? 
Do you think there's lots of arguments in the Trinity over who's the most omniscient or who's the most omnipresent or who's the oldest? It's an ironic thing. When Jesus came to earth, what was the most common argument among, among his disciples? Who's the greatest? The greatest in our day is kind of a, associated with a famous boxer. Do you remember who it was who said all the time, I am the greatest? Muhammad Ali. Uh, he was getting on an airplane one time and the flight attendant told him that he had to buckle his seatbelt or the plane couldn't take off. He said, I'm not going to buckle my seatbelt. She said, you have to or we're not going to leave. And Ali said, I don't have to do it. I'm Muhammad Ali. I don't have to do anything. I'm not going to wear a seatbelt. And she said, you are or this plane is not taken off. And Ali said, I'm not going to do it because Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she looked at him and said, Superman don't need no airplane. <laughs> it's an ironic thing that when Jesus, the son, lived among human beings, the most common argument was, who's the greatest? But I want you to think about what the writers of Scripture teach us about life within the Trinity. And I want to start with the Holy Spirit in the Trinity. I have to tell you, I've been really excited about what we're going to learn today because I believe I'm gonna tell you some of the most wonderful words about God that I've ever read. This is from a New Testament theologian named Dale Brunner. Uh, he's written a, a little book called The Holy Spirit, the Shy Member of the, the Trinity. This is what he writes. One of the most surprising discoveries in my own study of the doctrine and experience of the Spirit in the New Testament is what I can only call the shyness of the Holy Spirit. What I mean here is not the shyness of timidity. After all, Paul in 2 Timothy 1.7 calls him the spirit of power. He's not a timid spirit. Not the shyness of timidity, but the shyness of deference. The shyness of a concentrated attention on another. It is not the shyness which we often experience of self-centeredness, but the shyness of another centeredness. In a word, the shyness of love. There's something very striking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus said about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, John 14, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. John 15, when the advocate comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. John 16, but when he, the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. The Holy Spirit, when he comes to earth, does not clamor to have attention focused on himself. His constant ministry is to get people to focus on Jesus. Brunner says, it's as if the Spirit is just pointing people to Jesus, saying, look at him, pay attention to him, notice him, listen to him, be preoccupied with him, love him, serve him, follow him. See, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, amazingly enough, does not need to draw attention to himself. The Spirit's great desire is that human beings be fully preoccupied with Jesus. Brunner says, it has often been said that the Holy Spirit is the Cinderella of the Trinity, the great neglected person of the Godhead. 
But the Holy Spirit's desire is that we be overcome again, thrilled again, excited and gripped again by the wonder, the majesty, uh, the relevance of Jesus. The Holy Spirit does not mind being Cinderella outside of the ballroom if the prince is honored inside his kingdom. And it's what he calls the shyness of the Spirit, that the Spirit loves to exalt the Son. But when we look at Jesus, oddly enough, he didn't walk around saying, I am the greatest. He said in John 8, 54, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. He says he didn't come to be served, but to serve. And he submits to the Spirit. The Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he submits to the Father. I mean, his great prayer is, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, too, has this same shyness. And then there's the Father. Uh, twice in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we hear the voice of the Father once at the baptism and once at the transfiguration of Jesus. And both times he says, this is my priceless son. I am deeply pleased with him. Listen to him. Brunner writes this, the major fact bar none that God the Father wants the world to know is all that we have in God the Son. Jesus of Nazareth is almost his total preoccupation. It is worth noticing that the voice from heaven does not say, listen to me too. After listening to him, don't forget that I'm up here too. Don't, take, don't be taken up with my son too much. And then he writes this, God the Father is shy too. The whole blessed Trinity is shy. Each member of the Trinity points faithfully and selflessly to the other in a gracious circle. You know, I was raised in some ways to think of God as this uh, proud, almost arrogant being who could get away with it because he was God and so powerful, but it's not so. If you want to think about the Trinity, you might think about it like this. The Son exalts the Father, submits to the Father, and the Father's delight is to glory, uh, to glorify the Son. And the Spirit comes to point not to himself, but to the Son. And the Son submits to the ministry of the Spirit, and the Father sends the Spirit and is delighted in the Spirit, and the Spirit intercedes on our behalf with the Father. Like the, the whole Trinity is this circle of unbroken mutual submission and mutual servanthood and mutual love and mutual delight. The whole blessed Trinity is shy. Father, Son, and Spirit experiencing perfect oneness throughout all of eternity. That's the God we serve. And the significance of the doctrine of the Trinity is this amazing truth that God exists in community from all of eternity. He's not alone being shut up within himself. God experiences perfect community within himself throughout all of eternity. God is three and yet one. And because community is such a beautiful thing to God, he creates human beings in his own image. He creates human beings, male and female, in his own image with the capacity to experience oneness. That's why the writer of Genesis said, and the two shall become one. We're capable of this oneness. God is three and yet one, and he created human beings in his image, and the two shall become one. They shall know this kind of oneness. 
but we lost this in the fall. This, this was lost to us. And the man and the woman had to leave Eden. And you understand when the writer of scripture says they left Eden, it's not just a, about a geographical location. It's a, it's a loss of community. There was a kind of picture in Genesis 3.24 that says there was an angel set up and they had to leave to go east of Eden. And then in chapter 4, when Cain is a murderer, it says he leaves the presence of God and goes east of Eden. Now, to the east of Israel, of course, is where all their enemies were. And east of Eden becomes this picture of the horror and the violence and the tragedy that happens when human beings lose community. And we still live east of Eden. I mean, just read the news about all the war that goes on in the world. Read about all the mass shootings in the United States. We still live east of Eden. That's why loneliness is so painful. And that's why it's so powerful to the human heart when we get glimpses of oneness here in this life. The oneness you see in a great marriage, the one you see, oneness you see between a parent and a child in a great family, the oneness you see uh, on a team when they sacrifice together and have that moment when they win the title together and they're just one team, kind of like the 2016 Chicago Cubs when they won the World Series. Have I ever mentioned that to you? <laughs> this oneness creates a longing inside all of us. And that longing will never be fully satisfied by any marriage or any family or any team. It will not be fully satisfied until one day when we are part of the fellowship that God himself enjoys eternally, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, I want you to notice something. This is the prayer that Jesus makes in John 17 about his passion for oneness. Jesus is praying for his disciples, and he says this, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Who is that? That's us. That's you and me. That all of them may be what? That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. You see, this intense intimacy of the Trinity becomes the picture of oneness that Jesus wants for us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you're in me and I'm in you. Now look at the next phrase. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is a staggering statement. Jesus says, may you and I, may we be one, just like the Son and the Father and the Spirit are one. And then he says, may, may they be in us. In other words, the unity, the community, the fellowship that we are to know is the fellowship that is experienced within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Perfect, unbroken, unmarred, unblemished oneness. May they also be in us. You see, this is what the Trinity is about. Dallas Willard writes these wonderful words. 
The advantage of believing in the Trinity is not that we get an A from God for giving the right answer. The advantage of believing in the Trinity is that we then live as if the Trinity is real, as if the cosmos around us actually is beyond all else, a community of unspeakably, unspeakably magnificent personal beings of boundless love, knowledge, and power. That's what we live in. More than we live in a planet in the midst of stars, more than that, we live in a community of unspeakably magnificent beings. And we'll talk more about this in just a moment. I have been watching a lot of Survivor lately. I don't know why I got hooked, but let me tell you, it's all I watch. In fact, I subscribed to Paramount Plus so that I could watch all those old seasons. It's an obsession at this point. If you've never seen Survivor, it calls itself a social experiment in which a group of everyday people is placed on a deserted island or landscaped and tasked with working together and battling against each other to ultimately become the sole survivor. This sole survival or survivor doesn't just do it for the title. The winner also receives a $1 million reward. It's pretty solid. Each season has a unique mixture of characters, unlikely friends who form small in-groups through alliances. They try and take out the threats. They blindside one another. They bleed and compete and starve to win. Why am I talking about Survivor? Well, because the microcosm of the show reflects this larger experience we exist in. While we don't live to the extreme that the Survivor contestants experience, we do live in realities that are competitive. We, like the contestants, are faced with evaluating others, making sure we make it to the top. Some of us use our smarts or our physical prowess. Some of us hide in the backgrounds and work within the shadows. But we're all striving for something, reaching for something. And at times, that consumer movement can lead us to sin. Sometimes we can talk bad about others. We can prioritize money above community. We can seek power above all. But the spirit and the Trinity offer something that is radically different. As Matt's been talking, I've struck by the words he uses to describe the spirit, calm, shy, humble, directing us to Jesus. One of my favorite verses on the spirit comes in Genesis 1. Genesis 1 verses 2 says that the earth was formless and empty and dark, and the spirit of God hovered over this calm, serene light hovering over the void. There's a gentleness in the spirit, yet a boldness as the spirit draws us closer to the triune God. The reality is that some of us are treating our faith right now like it's a game of survivor. We're fighting and deceiving and moving ourselves into a life that is void of God. And as we do that, the spirit hovers, hovers over our emptiness, our darkness, and the spirit waits. So friends, may we respond. May we dive into this spirit that brings humility and generosity and direction back to Jesus. Not sure what that looks like? Well, let's rejoin Matt as we dive deeper into this God we don't know. All right, now I wanna talk about what does it cost for the Father, Son, and Spirit to say, let us bring broken, fallen human beings into our fellowship. What does it cost? Well, the Son says, I will leave heaven and go to earth. What does that mean? Is it like leaving California to go to Idaho? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like that. <laughs> no. 
in some way that we don't fully understand, the son says, I will leave this perfect oneness that I've known for all eternity and I'll become like human beings and I'll take on their brokenness and I'll take on their sin and I'll take on their aloneness in ways that we'll never understand. The son says, I will die utterly God forsaken on a cross. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the father says, I will offer my son whom I love beyond words. I will see him broken and twisted and rejected and beaten and killed. The sin of the whole human race poured out on him and his pain will be my pain. And there will be brokenness between the son and the father who have known only oneness throughout all of eternity. And the son will experience the forsakenness of the father. And the spirit says, I will be poured out on the earth in mostly silent, invisible ways. I will offer to lead and guide, never exalting myself, always pointing to the Son. And to a large extent, the Spirit's promptings will be and have been ignored or even denied. And the Spirit will be quenched and the Spirit will be defied. The Spirit will be grieved, the writer of Scripture says. The Spirit was never grieved by the Father or the Son, not, uh, not throughout eternity, but now the Spirit knows grief. Father, Son, and Spirit say, we will take onto ourselves the pain of brokenness, broken community, broken oneness, so that anyone can enter into our fellowship. And now you and I have been invited into this fellowship of love through the gracious ministry of the Holy Spirit at enormous cost to every member of the Trinity. Therefore, to tolerate disunity in the body of Christ to do things that could lead to disunity that the son gave his life for is utterly unthinkable. To allow or contribute to disunity in this church is to be fundamentally at odds with the purpose of God in human history. I wanna say as strongly as I know how, I believe that many, many people, including many, many people inside the church drastically and tragically ignore God's passion for the unity of his people. I want you to notice again what it is that Paul says in Ephesians 4.3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit, to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Now you notice he doesn't say to create unity within the church. This is not a human project. This has been going on for a long time before human beings ever came to this earth. He doesn't say create unity. He says maintain it because it's not ours to begin with. But he does say make every effort. Now, this is a very rare verb of intense urgency in the New Testament. One New Testament scholar says the nuances of what Paul is saying are yours is the initiative. You do it now. You pay any price. You spare no pain. You are to do this. I, Paul, mean this. In light of the beauty of community and the staggering cost that the Trinity paid to invite us into it, don't you dare take it lightly. Don't you dare let it be damaged. And don't you dare do anything yourself that would damage it. This is God's great passion. This is... Jesus' great prayer, oneness is the signature of God. I was thinking this week, 
thinking about church history, what doctrine or what gift have we not allowed to split churches or denominations? Like what mode of baptism should we use? What doctrine of the end times should we teach? What should pastors say or where? What translation of the Bible should we use? What should the role of the Holy Spirit be? Like what's the right style of preaching? What's the right type of music? It is unspeakably tragic. It is simply literally unspeakably tragic that Christians, that churches sacrifice oneness so often in a spirit of self-righteousness or just an idiotic need to need to be right. Can you name one doctrine that has not been allowed to split churches and denominations? You know, we come from many different church backgrounds at Blue Oaks. I grew up in a Baptist church. Uh, I have friends at Blue Oaks who have grown up in Presbyterian churches, uh, Methodist churches, Lutheran churches. Many grew up in non-denominational churches. Do you know how many churches are represented at Blue Oaks? One. You see, in, <laughs> in the end, Jesus will not allow his people to be separated not into Baptist churches versus Presbyterian churches, not into charismatic versus non-charismatic churches. Jesus just has the one church. That's all he has. And people who imperil the unity of his church in uh, small groups, in families, in local congregations, declare themselves the enemy of what God prizes above all. Do you have any idea how seriously God takes this? Listen to what Paul writes to the church at Corinth, which was torn apart by disunity. He said, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? That's in the plural form. In other words, uh, he's not talking about physical bodies. He's saying you, the church, like are God's temple, the abiding place of God on earth. And that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple for God's temple is sacred. He's talking about God's oneness and you and I are that temple. I want to tell you, I want us to be just crystal clear on this. There are so many people in so many churches who have no idea what they're in for someday. They think that because they've avoided uh, sleeping with someone or avoided you know something that makes a scandal in the church in our day you know that they're relatively blameless before god paul and other writers of scripture ask do you have any idea how jealous god is for the unity of his body and how god's anger burns at anyone who would destroy tamper or take it casually i do not understand why churches or people who name the name of Christ allow slander to go unchecked or rumors or gossip or unresolved conflict or bitter words or power struggles or an unforgiving spirit or a judgmental heart, deliberately excluding someone, deliberately avoiding someone, deliberately trying to hurt someone, deliberately uh, spreading bad information about someone, going day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, allowing what God prizes most to be trampled on. 
we better not dare, not here, not at Blue Oaks. That will not happen in this church. So let's get concrete in the moments that remained. How do we go about making every effort? Paul says this is a real intense deal. Ephesians 4.3, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit. Make every effort to maintain, to honor, guard, cherish, protect, not create, but keep the unity of the spirit. So let's roll up our sleeves for a minute and take a look at how we go about that. And this comes right out of the text, three things. And I think sometimes because these words are words that are familiar, uh, we can just kind of tend to skip right over them. Ephesians 4.2, be completely humble and gentle, or it could be translated gracious. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. I want to look at what it means to make every effort to do these things. Uh, first of all, we're, to, we're going to look at humility. What does it mean to be humble with each other? This has to do with being a servant. And the opposite of this would be uh, being self-serving, having a sense of entitlement. Now, I want to ask you to do a little uh, self-assessment on this. How are you when you don't get your way? Because the unity of the Spirit, what is most precious to God, rests on a thousand little moments when people will decide whether or not they will be humble, whether or not they will live as servants, or whether they won't. How do you handle it when you don't get your way? How do you handle it when you're in a small group and someone says something funny? Are you able to enjoy what they've said, or do you need to try to say something funnier? How are you when someone else's spiritual gift is being highlighted or praised? Can you name it and encourage them? Or do you need the spotlight to focus on you? What about just acts of service? You know, when I see people at Blue Oaks just serving in selfless ways, or uh, people at homes in small groups where the, the group meets and they have something to eat, and then people just get up and automatically start to help clean up. Just a thousand little things like that in which we proclaim whether or not we're servants. How do you do at listening? Do you really listen? I mean, that's a humble thing to do. When you're in an argument with someone, what's your need to be right like? I grew up in a church where uh, there were a couple people who were looked up to a whole lot as real spiritual people because they had a lot of theological information. But I'll tell you something, they had a need to be right that would not die and they hurt people with it. Paul says, make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit by being completely humble. How are you doing at that one? All right, the next one is, Paul says to be gentle, or it could be translated to be gracious. And the opposite of this would be to have a spirit of judgmentalism or even contempt for someone else. I want to ask you to do a self-assessment on this one as well. So let me ask you, do you have any issues of unresolved conflict or bitter feelings toward anyone in the church? Is there any lack of gentleness or grace in the way that you're relating to someone? 
Because I'll tell you something, it's way too easy for us to not deal directly with a person when we're having a problem with them and then to talk to someone else about it. I mean, it's the default mode of the human race, but it kills the church and it kills unity. So many people either don't engage directly with the person that they're having a problem with because they're afraid or they go around with a spirit of self-righteousness and a judgmental attitude that comes out in their words and in the way that they say them. In either path, either uh, avoidance out of fear or self-righteousness, uh, a judgmental spirit just destroys unity. And so I ask you today to just go down a list. Is there anyone in the church that you have unresolved conflict, unresolved uh, feelings, bitterness, problems with? Have you been taking it to a third party to talk about it? If you have, well, I'd say you have some work to do. And the writers of scripture suggest you do it now. Be completely gentle. Be completely gracious. Speak the truth and grace to everyone in this church. And then Paul says, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Every, every human being you know is someone who needs to be bared with in one way or another. So do a little assessment on this one. God, the Father, Son, and Spirit has said he will pay any price to invite everyone into his community. And so the question is, how about you? Do you embrace the people around you? Do you let them know you welcome them and you want them to be a part of community? Do you take the time to look someone in the eye, let someone know that you're glad they're part of your life? Do you speak affirming words to them? Do you offer forgiveness where it's needed? Paul is dead serious about the fact that we're to make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and he's very serious when he says, but be completely humble and completely gentle and completely patient. The oneness, the unity of God's people is something that is unspeakably prized by God. And I charge you today, make every effort, pay any price, spare no cost to maintain what matters so much to God. And maybe you can start today. Maybe there's someone who's next to you or real near to you who is lonely or discouraged or afraid or worried and just needs someone to listen for a moment or needs someone to encourage them or to take a second to pray for them. Make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit. All right, let me pray for us. God, we're so grateful for the doctrine of the Trinity and for this understanding that there is this mutual uh, submission and love within the Trinity, and you invite us to be a part of that, and it's just so remarkable. God, would you help us to understand more about the kind of community that you want us to live in and how uh, prized it is for you that we experience unity and oneness Help us individually to make every effort possible to maintain the spirit of oneness within our church. We each have work to do, I'm sure. Help us to see 
what it is that we need to do to uh, to create, to to maintain, to uh, pursue this uh, oneness that you desire. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today. Uh, and we hope to see you on Sunday soon.